Coming to you from the Barrier Islands Center on Virginia's Eastern Shore, this is Sharing the Mic with David Phillips. In each episode, we try to give you a different perspective of life on the Eastern Shore, whether it's about an occupation or simply stories of what people who have lived here have done in their careers. If you like what you hear, share it with your friends. Sharing the Mic is a monthly podcast with each new episode appearing the first of each month. Fans of the BIC documentary films have remarked on the beautiful music that perfectly sets the mood and captures our emotions. My guest is Emile Menache, who composed the original scores for all seven films and is instrumental, pun intended, in the success of each film. A graduate of New York University's acclaimed Tisch School of the Arts, Emile is a self-described music geek who scores film and TV projects, plays, writes, and produces music, and also writes books and journals about music. This interview was conducted remotely from my home in Norfolk and with Emil, who is in his home in upstate New York. Emil Menashe, welcome to Sharing the Mic. Oh, thank you very much, David. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well, thank you. I hope the weather's okay up there. Actually, it's between downpours at the moment. <laughs> it was uh, really pouring earlier this morning, and then uh, my neighbors have chickens, and they uh, they usually decide that they're going to make their presence known around ten. And uh, on a, I was on a uh, newspaper deadline, so I was trying to edit. And the chickens were going, and I'm thinking, oh boy, I hope they stop before uh, <laughs> before our podcast. So. They seem to have stopped at this point. I read that you fell in love with the acoustic guitar uh, while spending summers on your mother's family farm near Ireland's Lakes of Killarney, where cousins introduced you to the music of Leo Kotke and John Martin. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So my mom is from County Kerry, and we used to go over and spend the summers. When I was young, my grandparents' farm actually was very rustic. They didn't have electricity or anything on the farm. And uh, my cousins who lived in England used to come for part of the summer, and the older brothers were musicians. And they still, actually, they're still fine musicians, and they would play the guitar. And I was just fascinated by it, because the kind of music my parents listened to in the house was mostly like... uh, you know, we used to have a station in New York called WNEW, and they played sort of the pop, you know, show tunes and uh, Sinatra and stuff like that. Stuff I would come to appreciate later, but as a kid, you know, it wasn't that fun. And seeing my cousins with long hair playing the guitar in the 70s was like the coolest thing ever. And uh, yeah, I got interested when I was, I started playing when I was about 14 and uh, have barely had a guitar in my hands since. What continues to intrigue you about music? Well, there's a couple of things about it. One is that for me, like I, I, if I'm uh, walking through a room and I pick up a guitar to just move it from, you know, off a chair or something. By the time I get to the next spot I want to put it, I'll have often come up with something new and it just kind of it's sort of like a subconscious draw. So there's the, an emotional component to it and there's this sort of intellectual component of my brain working where I'm not guiding it that I, I really like. And then, you know, it's endlessly challenging. I still am learning all the time and I'm teaching and I learn from my students and, you know, this never ends. You've done all the music for all of the Barrier Island Center James Spion films. Tell us how that collaboration came about and why you think it has endured. Well, uh, I actually met Jim. Uh, he's 
probably not going to appreciate me saying this, but like 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, and I was teaching in a school. One of the other teachers' husband was a filmmaker and had gone to school with Jim and John Young and some some others. His name is Guy Kamara. And so I just got to know them and I just started working on films with John and that's how I got to know Jim. And uh, he did a documentary before the Barrier Island films called American Farm. And I did music for that. And it was very much in the vein of the kind of stuff we're doing. It's like acoustic guitar is the central instrument in those scores. And uh, and then we just did, I guess, uh, Our Island Home was the first one we did. And I don't think we thought we were going to have more of them to do. But it, it went well and the style endured. And we've gone from there. And each one of them has been a real window into culture, both the specific culture at the Barrier Island Center's area, but also I think it's a look into American culture and the way it's changed and continues to change and will always continue to change. So it's been a fascinating uh, series to work on. For many films, even documentaries, there is often a script and a definite storyline prior to the shooting of the film. In speaking with Jim, I learned that his approach is to let the characters, that is the people whom he interviews, create the script during the shooting of the film. Mm -hmm. So the story arc really develops after the film is shot. Given that, please Talk about the process of scoring uh, the BIC films. Well, actually, uh, David, it's a very interesting question. And the scoring sort of follows what you just described with the characters telling their story. So on not every single film is exactly the same, depending on when I get into the project. But in general, what will happen is Jim will have a few scenes cut together, but he'll have a lot of raw footage. So I'll see, let's say, let's say there's an interview, I'll see maybe 10 minutes minutes of an interview, whereas in the story, there might only be a few minutes of that person talking. But I'll kind of get to know that character a little bit. That'll happen. So with scoring, you have, especially in a documentary, you have people, you have time, and you have places. And each of those kinds of things may get either a texture or a specific theme. So I'll watch the people and I'll look at some of the um, scenery shots and he shoots you know really beautiful stuff and i'll just start writing you know so i don't sit there especially early on i don't sit there looking at edited scenes to cut to i'll just start writing music based on what i see i'll send it to jim Jim will start using some of it. Sometimes he'll pick something that I intended for one character or setting and just apply it somewhere else. And he'll edit the music the way you would edit film too. He might take, you know, part of one piece and move it around and stuff. And then later in the process, I start to see that music as it fits in. And then I start to kind of hone in and say, okay, you know, this is Norris's theme or something like that. And then create variations on that kind of thing. So, you know, depending on also on the story arc, like something that's very minimalist might endure as a theme throughout the whole film. And then something that's more elaborate, like on the last project we did, we actually had more orchestral scores and stuff that uh, were tied very specifically to characters and, and events. So yeah, it varies every time. You just mentioned orchestral scores. I've observed that in some of your films, uh, Parallel Sons, for example, you used an ensemble of orchestral instruments, mm -hmm. while in others, uh, most if not all of the BIC films, uh, it sounds as though a single instrument at a time is, a ch is the choice. Mm -hmm. uh, as an example, a lone banjo in a segment of our island home 
if mm-hmm. I'm hearing correctly. Yeah, that's uh, right. Um, why is that? I feel like uh, it just seems to suit the, you know, the, these these stories are so often about individuals, especially the stories that are set current, you know, like in current contemporary time. And in our island home, for example, even though it was telling a story of, of the past, the protagonists were all in the story at the time like these were people recalling their memories and it just felt that kind of connection and also one of the things that's interesting about having a small ensemble or even a a solo instrument is that let's say you have like a single note phrase that is tied to a character and then you play a chord on the guitar. Well, normally, like most settings, a chord on a guitar is not such a big thing. But in the context of having all of these sparse little notes, you have a chord, it feels big. So you can have like the, like a big moment without like knocking people over the head with it, you know, musically. Um, And it just gives you room to open the music up also, you know, to let it have space between phrases. It's much logistically easier with one instrument. And I suppose budget has something to do with it as well uh, in terms of hiring musicians and rehearsal time and all that sort of thing. It does, though, uh, with, you know, modern technology, you can kind of compensate. You know, Parallel Sons had, you know, live musicians playing on it. In terms of orchestrating the score, we can use uh, digital tools as well as acoustic instruments. So, for example, um, I might take uh, a sampled orchestral sound and then layer a violin on top. So it's cost effective to do it that way. Um, would it be nice to have the budget to hire a full orchestra? Absolutely. That would be fun. But I don't know that it would much change the way I approach the music for the Barrier Island stories. Anyway, because the the acoustic instruments and sort of the simplicity of it, uh, A, to me it fits, and B, I think that's become something of an identity for the whole series. It kind of ties them together. It does indeed, because I've seen all the films, and uh, there's a definite continuity. Not to say that it's all the same, but uh, you kind of know where you are sonically when you hear that music and you say, oh, I know where we are. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's really, it's it's really wonderful. In the grand scheme of things, do you think these Barrier Islands uh, Center documentaries are important? And if you do, why? Yes, I do. And I and the reason they're important uh, is because they are a window into both a very specific part of American culture that, like a lot of. Uh, regional differences that we have are being kind of swallowed up by malls and interstates and every every place has the same Chipotle, you know, down the, the main strip kind of vibe that we have now. So it gives you that. It also preserves a sense of community and time, but they're not, what I, what I like about them too, is specifically, and I think this has a lot to do with Jim's approach, is they don't feel static. You know, even stories that look backward also look ahead. You know, stories about the environment, stories about foodways, farming, story about the duck decoys. You know, they're they're all in a context. And you can take that context and make it into a larger context. I feel like the, the stories resonate. The other, the other thing is I've actually had people who, you know, like coworkers and, and stuff just randomly 
say, oh, I happened to be visiting the Barrier Island Center and I saw this documentary and you did the music for it. You know, so people from outside of your area, when they're passing through, like to watch those documentaries and give them a connection to to the Eastern Shore, which is such an incredible place. Do you have any projects that you're now working on that you're excited about? And if so, can you tell us about it? Yeah, well, uh, I am working on a new, actually two films for Jim at the moment. One of them is a Barrier Island project that is yet untitled, but uh, it will be about the center itself. About the, the almshouse. Yeah, and I, I actually came up with a few things yesterday. I don't know if I could play something, but let's see if I can Please find do. the slide. Yeah, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't really planning to, to do this, but um, I was playing around with this guitar that has uh, raised strings. I've, I've used this dobro a lot in scores, and uh, I was just thinking about this yesterday, and I That just felt like something to go with the, the the setting, and I briefly recorded it yesterday until uh, until the tree guy showed up and my dog started barking. I have an excellent recording of my dog barking downstairs. Every time I listen to it, I think the dog is barking again, so I take my headphones off, but it's just a recording. Anyway, so that that idea will probably in some form or another be in the next film. I'm also working on another documentary for Jim, uh, which is going to have a jazz score. So it's a little bit different. And uh, other than that, you know, just uh, writing songs. Uh, I'm teaching guitar for the first time. I started back in September for the first time in quite a few years, and I'm enjoying that. My students keep me on my toes. And I edit a local weekly newspaper, which is, you've witnessed uh, for, for the audience. I got a call, panic call from my publisher in the middle of our interview, and I had to uh, jump off for a minute and have to jump back on <laughs> after I get out of this interview. So uh, I'm not looking forward to that as much as I'm enjoying our chat. Before we leave, I just want to mention that the Barrier Island Center gift shop has your CD, Overtones for sale. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, interestingly, Overtones is is the album that was inspired a lot by working on this kind of music. I think I had already done at least one, maybe two of the Barrier Island projects and had done American Farm and uh, just the sparseness of the acoustic guitar music because I, you know, I also play electric guitar and do stuff like that. But there was something about that exact thing we were talking about with the scoring where you have sort of a, a minimalist approach and then you sort of can add a little bit to that and it starts to feel big that was sort of the idea behind overtones so even though that music isn't directly part of the barrier island scoring it's very much inspired by the same thing and also influences my approach to the barrier island music have you got any anything you'd like to share with us before we leave? N- not really. I, every year I say I'm going to make a uh, soundtrack album of Barrier Island Center music, some of the best of. And uh, Jim and I talk about it and then I get busy. So maybe this will be the year now that I've committed to it on a podcast. Do it. Do that, it. <laughs> uh, we'll do a Barrier Island soundtrack album of some of, some of our favorites. 
That would be wonderful. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to say that, the, you know, I've been down there a couple of times to perform and it's, it's such a wonderful place. The people are incredible. The first time that I came down to actually meet people at a screening, I, I don't think I've ever felt as welcomed by an audience in my life. It was just, it's a really powerful experience. So I hope to be down there again sometime soon. Well, we hope you will be too. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it and have a great rest of your day. Several years ago, Hampton Roads Public Media, WHRO, did a series of short spots called Our Eastern Shore. On each of our podcasts, I will revisit one episode. Listen. The Coming of the Railroad. You're listening to Our Eastern Shore. The actual laying of railroad track on the Eastern Shore did not begin until the 1880s. They ran from Maryland down the peninsula to a new town named Cape Charles City. From the harbor there, passengers would board steamers to cross the Chesapeake Bay. New towns grew up around the railroad depots, and passengers were excited about the luxurious cars with dining and sleeping facilities. For local people, traveling to new cities and resorts became much easier. At first, there was but a single track, but at the turn of the century, a parallel track was laid, and locomotives moved up and down the peninsula at an impressive speed. By the 1950s, the elegant steam locomotives were being replaced by the less elegant but more powerful diesels. Sadly, the trains could not compete with motor vehicles in 20th century America. Yet there are still those who miss the mournful whistle of a night train on the Eastern Shore tracks. Our Eastern Shore is created by WHRO in partnership with the Barrier Islands Center. Funding has been provided by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. You have been listening to Sharing the Mic with David Phillips, produced by the Barrier Islands Center on Virginia's Eastern Shore. Sally Dickinson, Executive Director. Kristen Dennis, Office and Marketing Manager. Megan Ames, Director of Planning and Development. Tracy Jones, Director of Education. The Barrier Island Center is located at 7295 Young Street in Machipongo, Virginia, 23405. The website is www.barrierislandscenter.org. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please direct them to bicpodcast at icloud.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Until next time, stay safe and be well.